0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape
1: to reality.
2: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 16th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein.
1: Did you know in 1827, Charles Darwin made his earliest scientific discovery at age 18? He dissected, some dissected specimens of barnacle-like marine organism called the Blozian flustra. And that be- that's when he became very interested in biology and natural history. And instead of becoming a, doc- a doctor, a physician like his father wanted him to be, instead, he went and became a naturalist.
2: Although apparently he couldn't stand the sight of blood. Which well, there was all- that.
1: And screaming. From (laughs) what (laughs) the two went hand in hand often in those times, so
2: Hmm.
1: you know, blood and screaming. Yes,
2: and that also started the lifelong love affair with uh, barnacles with for Darwin. In fact, most of his technical writing was about barnacles.
0: Lifelong love affair with barnacles, not something you hear very
1: often. But look what it led to. I mean, that was really those were some of the first steps that led to you know bigger and more momentous uh, findings later in life.
2: I mean, you always wonder with things like that, or at least I do. Like, if so, if Darwin's life took a different course and he never developed the theory of evolution. You know, how long would it have taken for that theory to emerge from other minds and, and to to rise to the prominence that it did? Like, where would we be today? You know, I know Alfred Rus- Russell Wallace. Yeah. Wallace, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, yeah but working. he he was like ninety percent of the way there. He wasn't hundred percent of the way there. But. So it
1: would it would. Is it fair to assume that somebody around that time or that generation would have come up with the, with those? Uh, well ideas? that's the
2: thing. You 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 think so and again so again the the Alfred Russell Wallace certainly suggests that that idea was sort of ripe for the picking, and somebody would have picked that fruit. But you still wonder how different things would be because Wallace wasn't as wasn't as hooked in as Darwin was, and and didn't have T. H. Huxley around, you know, to be his bulldog for him. So it's always sort of the the personal side of science. Uh, you also wonder for you know I think it's even a bigger question for somebody like Albert Einstein, right? I mean, if Einstein didn't didn't live or his life took a different course, how long would it have been before we came up with relativity? Because that 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 seems like he really you know, pulled that out of um, you know his own personal genius. That, that I mean, obviously there right. there, there, were, there were antecedents to that as well, but I don't think anyone was close to saying, "Hey, this is the way the universe really works." You know, it
3: also right. makes you think about what other discoveries came close to being made and didn't get the funding, or the the scientists didn't get to yeah. publish, or you know that type of thing. Like you know, I think we're lucky that Darwin and uh, Einstein did what they did but you know it's just it's kind of a crapshoot in a way when you talk about someone like Einstein,
2: but Jay, why do you say Einstein? Yeah, that's so weird. Einstein. Yeah. Einstein. Einstein.
3: Einstein.
2: Oh, I think goodness. maybe I think I think maybe you're being overly influenced by uh, <laughs> <I laughs> Ayn Rand uh, <laughs> <I laughs> or something. It's
3: the weirdest <laughs> thing, thing, I've thing I've ever heard. heard I just read The Fountainhead and I just can't get that, you know, that cadence out of my head. No, I don't know. I don't even hear that when I say his name. I don't hear me say that. I hear me say Einstein.
0: you just said it again?
1: Forget that nuclear crap.
3: Um. (laughs) I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You actually said nuclear, didn't you? I
3: do. I do. I say it that way
2: proudly.
1: Nuclear. Nuclear. No, no. You have to George Bush it. Nuclear.
2: Nuclear. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's go on to some news items. We have to talk about... The, the massive earthquake in Japan. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, be, before we do, I, you know, hopefully this will stem some of the emails. I have to say, of course, we take major disasters like this very seriously, and we, we certainly feel for you know, all of the people who have been you know, killed and displaced and homeless because of this. This is a very serious situation. But we, we do want to talk about a couple of skeptical angles to uh, come out of this. Later in the show, we are going to actually have a physics lesson by a, an actual nuclear engineer... To talk all about the uh, the nuclear power plants in Japan. But for first, we're just going to talk about the earthquake itself, which kind of follows up on our discussion from last week. Right, Rebecca?
0: Yeah. This uh, the supermoon stuff just um, keeps going and going and going. You know, a few weeks ago, we mentioned Ken Ring and his um, quack theory that earthquakes can be caused by, by the moon. And then, of course, the Christchurch earthquake occurred, and that brought him right to the forefront. And then, uh, the, this Japanese earthquake has happened, which once again has people asking whether or not Kenring can predict earthquakes, because he was, uh, predicting more earthquakes to come, um, in March, although he wasn't, uh, he didn't predict any to come this early um he predicted earthquakes around the time of the supermoon which is the moon at its closest uh, orbit to earth the moon of course orbits in an ellipse and so therefore the its distance to earth changes over time um so a lot of people have said well you know the supermoon is coming up and so all these earthquakes must have something to do with it well they don't it has nothing to do with it as Listeners to this podcast probably could have guessed. In fact, the moon was uh, not at its closest orbit to Earth at the time of the earthquake in Japan. In fact, it was actually slightly further away than it usually is on average. So, it really seriously had nothing to do with the moon. And if you go to Ken Ring's website. And his uh, Twitter feed, for instance, at Kenring Weather, he did not predict anything to do with this earthquake, which appears to be the largest that's ever hit Japan within recorded history and maybe in the top five largest earthquakes that have ever been recorded, you'd think that if Ken could actually predict earthquakes using the moon, this one would have been somewhere on his radar, and it's nowhere. All he's ever mentioned about Japan in the past several weeks is an update to his Twitter feed on March 14th, well after the uh, the major earthquake, saying, potential for serious earthquake activity today in Japan, Indonesia, Hawaii, and South America. No kidding. Japan has been experiencing serious, uh, serious aftershocks ever since the 9.0 earthquake. However, on that day that he tweeted on March 14th, they, the, the 6.0 earthquake they had actually wasn't the largest of the aftershocks they were experiencing. So he didn't even really get that right. Um, so, you know, rest assured that that is still quackery and you cannot predict earthquakes by the moon.
3: Rebecca, didn't he, um, say something about March 17th or March 27th? There was a prediction?
0: March 20th. Yeah, March 20th is the date that he called out after the Christchurch earthquake. He said that the next major earthquake would be on March 20th. And so, and he also, he always couches his predictions by saying could happen a week before, a week after, you know, or a few days before, a few days after. So this sort of, I, th- I think leads people to think. Well, he said March 20th, but could be a few weeks before, and that counts. But yeah, it but doesn't count. You know, well, it's it not, doesn't count
2: because, as you said, the the moon's distance from the Earth. If that's your criterion, that varies over weeks. You know, that, right. that, It mm-hmm. makes does it-
0: absolutely no sense. Yeah, yeah. and and, and even if even if it it could, um, this p- provides a very good example of why it's perfectly useless um you know right. to to say major earthquake on march 20th well that didn't help anyone in japan did it uh, and not because no one takes ken ring seriously it's because it's so vague as to be utterly useless it's and the, it's vague earthquakes for the, all the time right it's vague I, for yeah. the express purpose of being able to fit a multitude of situations so that he yeah. can always consider himself right
2: exactly uh, Bob, tell us about uh, time travel in the Hadron Collider.
4: All right. So, who doesn't like time travel, right? I'm Jay. I know you and Steve and I were huge fans of time travel. And most of the time, the scenarios are clearly fictional. You know, you've got things like flying DeLoreans or whatever. Most of the time. Clear- <laughs> um. <laughs> all right. Almost all the time, but occasionally. And I love it when real science real scientists speculate on time travel based on a foundation of real hard science. That's, that's what I that really gets me interested. Even if it's still far-fetched, it's still fun because there's this layer of real science down there that makes you think, whoa, you know, maybe it really is possible. And this is exactly what Vanderbilt University researchers Tom Wheeler and Chu Man Ho are proposing. Their big idea now is that the, uh, the Large Hadron Collider might actually be able to uh, host some sort of time-traveling events when it hopefully eventually creates uh, the, the Higgs boson, the God particle uh, that, that everyone's waiting for. They, these scientists think that the LHC might also create what's called a Higgs singlet. Now, this is a theoretical particle, of course, that may be created when the Higgs boson is created. That just, they kind of like would appear together. And what these guys are saying is that this uh, Higgs singlet, it may actually be able to travel into and through the, a fifth dimension, and then re-enter our universe in the future or the past. So that, that's that's kind of the time travel that they're talking about. They're not talking about uh, you know sending people into the future or the past or anything, but just just really particles.
2: So shouldn't we be seeing these particles already?
4: Well, yeah, that's that's really that that's that's really the way to test their theory, and this is one of the things about it that makes me. That makes me really happy. Now they don't really necessarily we need to see it yet, Steve. But they at certain energy levels, maybe that we haven't reached yet. You could always say that. Oh yeah, uh, the particles may appear um, when the energy levels reach reach a certain. No, what I'm
2: talking about, Bob, is that shouldn't we be seeing the particles traveling in the past or in the future when they do reach those energy levels?
4: Yeah, well, yeah, and that's really the way that they that you test this thing. That because if you could actually, if they could actually come across these Higgs singlets. Appearing spontaneously without any without any real reason for them to appear, or not even just the Higgs singlets. Oh, you would also need to see like their decay products, whatever they are. I'm not sure what they are, but even if you see their decay pod products is appearing spontaneously, um, then they could have been produced in theory by collisions that haven't taken place yet, but collisions that occurred in the future, and then. Uh, the, the effects of the collisions travel back in time. So for me, that's one of the most exciting things about this because we have an actual prediction. It is an actual prediction. Right. And if they discover this, if they see these particles, then it would pretty much tell you, it would, it would pretty much vindicate their theory. But not only that, um, it's not just this theory that they're throwing out there. If you look at their theory, though, it would also vindicate string theory and M theory, which also makes this extra exciting because and one of the big problems, of course, with string theory and M-theory was that uh, how do you test these things? You know, you would, you, know you, you would need a collider as big as the solar system, crazy stuff like that. That's never going to happen. And, and, of course, that's one of the hallmarks of science.
2: Right. I was partly um, that, joking because I don't know how far back in time these particles are supposed to go. But uh, I'm, also, who knows? I'm also joking about this stuff. So what happens if we see these singlets – and then we cut funding for the eight, for the LHC, so they, never, they never do the experiments that generate them. Would that cause a paradox and destroy the universe?
0: I have a question.
2: Yeah, it, yeah. Could these much.
0: singlets? Could these singlets go back in time and kill Hitler?
4: They're so tiny that uh, he wouldn't even notice them. The other cool thing about this guys was the whole idea of M theory, the support for their for their idea, and and what you know, what is this fifth dimension, right? I mean, what are they talking about? They're not. They're, are they did they just pull that out of their butts? Is that, that
0: a music group? I know, I think it's the next big movie uh, fad.
2: Five D classes. Oh, yeah. Five D. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. <laughs> 5D. but you show oh, up God. to the movie and it started twenty minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, but you've missed all oh, the ads. That's so true.
4: it's a bonus. But <laughs> I like the ads. I like the previews. <laughs> I knew you were a freak, Bob. <laughs> Yeah, let me just qu- quickly, um, I promise it'll be quick over M theory, because this is kind of the foundation of this whole, uh, extra dimension that yeah, we're talking about. M theory. Um, M theory. M theory, um, is basically a theory of everything. Um, the M stands for lots of different things. It could be membrane, <laughs> membrane. or mystery or master theory. It's kind of, it kind of stands for whatever Mon- you want it to stand monster. for at the time. Cool. Okay. Dad, that's, um, that's good of me. So it basically, M theory is a union of all the uh, existing string theories. Uh, they kind of threw them all together and they all seemed like manifestations of one big overarching M theory. Now, M theory is pr- actually pretty f- more developed than I even thought and it could actually account for all the properties of all the known subatomic particles and forces. And when they put all that together into this one big 11 dimensional uber theory. So this kind of led to the idea of our universe, which you could see of, you could think of as a four dimensional membrane or brain uh, and meshed within this other multidimensional space time that they call the bulk. Their idea is that that everything in our universe, all the particles and everything that we know are stuck to our brain, our four-dimensional brain, and they can't get out of our brain. They can't move extra dimensionally. Now some scientists think that gravity can do it and they think that the reason why gravity is so much weaker than all the other forces is that it can somehow diffuse into these other dimensions. So the idea here is that this Higgs singlet may also be an exception and that um, it only responds to gravity and not any non, none of the other forces that we know and love, but the Higgs singlet could also somehow leave our brain and go into these other dimensions. And that's, so then when it's created, in the collider, it could leave our brain and go out into the, you know, the bulk or whatever they call it, and then come back into our brain somehow, and then where we would see it, but it would come back in the past or the future. So that's kind of that's pretty much a, a good overview of what of what they're talking about. The problems I see, though, I don't know, they're kind of obvious, if you, especially when you look at some of the quotes these guys are throwing around. Wheeler said stuff like, um, "One of the attractive things about this approach to time travel is that it avoids all the big paradoxes." Because time travel is limited to these special particles, it's not possible for a man to travel back in time and murder one of his parents, and you know all that story. Um, then he says, however, if scientists could control the productions of Higgs singlets, they might be able to send messages to the past or the future. Well, how does that avoid paradoxes? If you could actually control these singlets and send messages to the future or the past, can't that cause Problems with cause and effect, I mean, to me, that, that's a mighty big paradox to me. I mean, I think it could still cause many problems.
2: But I bet you, though, that even if you can get these particles to go back into the past, you couldn't use it to send information. That would be my guess.
4: My guess? My be- yeah, my guess would be no. Yeah, that would absolutely be my guess. not.
2: Okay. Unless, of course, you use a flux capacitor, then that would solve everything.
4: <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. But yeah. you need
1: plutonium. Oh, wait. Yes. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Mr.
2: Mis- mis- diffusion About one t- <laughs> 1.21 gigawatts of energy will do it.
0: Are we done with that now?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Bob,
0: is that
4: that all? That's all I got.
2: Okay. We'll go past Back to the Future to finding Atlantis. Now, finally, finally, researchers have once again claimed that they have found Atlantis. (laughs) Oh, good. Big news, guys. Very
3: exciting. And I really think this Mm -hmm. is the time that they really did find it. This is it. Yep. You will not be hearing about people discovering Atlantis ever again. (laughs) Isn't that a
1: casino in the Bahamas or Bermuda or something?
3: I would love to go to that place. It's like – what is that place? Like 1400 bucks a night for the cheapest room? Ouch. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Reuters recently reported – Reuters. That's Reuters. <laughs> Hem, Hem Reuters yeah. recently reported – it's pronounced the. Oh, my God.
0: Okay. It's too much.
3: Archaeologist. <laughs> that can't maybe, be right. <laughs> maybe
1: time travel is possible. Jay's regressed in time to <laughs> okay, some ar- three-year-old.
3: An archaeologist named Richard Fround, and I didn't make that pronunciation up, a professor from the University of Connecticut. He happens to be like an hour away from where uh, Evan, Bob, and Steve and I live.
1: Don't hold that against us.
3: He has found the ruins of Atlantis, the real ruins of Atlantis. For those of you who don't know what Atlantis is, it's a legendary island supposedly in uh, the Atlantic Ocean west of Gibraltar, west of Gibraltar uh, that sunk beneath the sea, oh, about 9,000 years ago at least. That's, uh, that's basically what uh, I-, I found date- dates from 9,000 to 17,000 years. Uh, people have speculated that uh, what-, what made Atlantis sink, guys?
2: Nothing because it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> bad answer. answer. Superman.
3: People, people Plato made it sink because he
2: wrote it. Yeah, Plato's
1: about it. mind, yes.
3: People actually believe that it, it was volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, floods, and uh, this has been speculated that it originally came from Plato who wrote about it. But I did find someone on the web say that it's actually been referenced in six or seven places even before Plato where maybe he got it from, but I couldn't really verify that. No, that's not that. true. That's not true? That's okay. it's
2: people looking for you know looking for any kind of reference that they can then retrofit and so that was a reference to Atlantis but no i mean it's clear from the historical record that plato made it up as a mythological place that was an example of the evil empire right that the shining mm. city of of athens uh, could be contrasted to as just as a moral discussion it it, w- it was clear that it, he didn't mean it as an actual Historical reference. There's no other reference to Atlantis contemporarily. You know, maybe there was some kind of story floating around that he latched onto, but there's there's you know nothing in the historical record to indicate that anybody at the time thought that this was real history that they were talking about. So it's not impossible. It's just it's just really really unlikely, and it's it's to, to a little silly to use Plato as a historical reference when that's not you know again it's like Referring to a Superman comic book of today as a historical reference, right? It's just not the way it was used. <laughs>
3: did you guys know that some people even believe that uh, Atlanteans were extraterrestrials? Did you ever well, hear yeah, because yeah. I mean,
0: they- hmm. people will literally believe anything.
3: So, yeah,
0: I did. <laughs> I guessed that
3: they said um, that that these Atlanteans uh, who were not from Earth uh, destroyed themselves after long after they had built Atlantis with extraordinarily powerful you know devices like like nuclear weapons or whatever. So one other quick interesting fact about Atlantis was that it was thought to be a very advanced civilization technologically and also you know like an idyllic type of society.
2: Yeah, which actually contradicts what Plato said. I mean Plato used it as an example of a decadent evil society, not an idyllic society. That's
3: that's actually a really good like point. Like the
1: evil C. galactic empire.
2: Yeah, basically. So
3: Richard Fround, the head re- researcher, again, getting back to him, has claimed that uh, Atlantis actually was sunk by tsunamis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it really does, um, it's just a coincidence that what, what just happened with Japan happens with this report because he's actually been working on this theory for two years. His team used satellite photography of a suspected submerged city to find the site just north of Cadiz, Spain. They claim to have found that in the marshlands that that are you know pretty pretty uh, significantly large and do go inland quite a ways. Uh, marshlands called uh, Dona Anna Park, and there what they think they found is a multi-ringed ancient city. And basically, he just came out saying that that you know it's it's proof that Atlantis existed. So they went to to all these locations and and used a combination of deep ground radar digital mapping and underwater technology to survey the site and they they used you know pretty state of the art equipment from what i could gather by doing research online they claim that if, that uh, froon found a series of memorial cities and i'd never heard of this theory before this is this is definitely new these memorial cities were supposedly and this is all his speculation supposedly built in atlantis's image by the Atlanteans that survived the tsunami. So the tsunami came in, destroyed Atlantis. These people decided to build memorial cities to Atlantis after that happened, which gave all the researchers, according to them, was added proof and confidence that what what they're speculating is correct. The team's findings are, and this is the part that really upset me, are going to be revealed on Sunday in a show called Finding Atlantis on National Geographic.
0: Yeah,
4: National Aww.
3: Geographic.
0: Matt geo. Ouch. Yeah. Going the, the water- way of TLC. Yeah. Awesome.
4: They hurt. the ratings. Right, Bob?
1: Are
0: the ratings that bad?
3: Well, what's the, the first alarm that goes off, guys? He's revealing his findings on a TV show and not... No, your- the
0: first alarm was, hey, I know something about Atlantis. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
3: that was the first Just, just alarm.
4: that one... No, even before that, just the word Atlantis. That's it. <laughs> yeah. That's one nice. word. No
3: publication in a scientific journal, no peer review, no having other teams go down there to take a look at his findings. Nothing. Just let's make a TV show. Uh, you know that by itself is suspect. And also, um, if we if we go under the idea of what Steve was saying, how Plato wrote about Atlantis, and we don't have any other historical places to to. Find out information about it, or give us more more proof that it actually did exist. I mean, we're basically going on the the writing of one person thousands of years ago.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's very disappointing. That I, and you can go to the National Geographic Channel and look at the the promo video they have there. It's terrible. You know, it's all mystery mongering. Basically, it looks like you know this guy may have found some ancient runes. You know, yeah, it's Spain. There were Roman runes all over the place. Uh, that's like saying Stonehenge is evidence of Atlantis. You know, just finding ruins is not evidence that it's Atlantis. It's not even in the place where Atlantis. What you know that would match Plato's description of where Atlantis was. Um, so that's why he has to then further hypothesize. Okay, this if this wasn't Atlantis, this is a city that was built by Atlanteans who survived the sinking of their of their island. I mean, so that by that logic, you could you know the ruins anywhere in the area you could say are are, are potentially uh, runes of runes of Atlanteans, if not Atlantis. It's it's What they don't have are actual artifacts. Right. They don't have anything any actual evidence that would link it to either nine thousand years ago as opposed to, say, you know, two or three or thousand years ago. And, and nor do they have it uh, uh, do they have evidence of any technology that's not appropriate for the time. You know what I mean? They don't have anything. They don't have anything. All they have is runes in Spain. Which they is the evidence of Atlantis.
3: Two little statuettes they have, they, they did find those and, you know, they, they dated them at around 2,000 years. So they definitely couldn't have even been in the time frame of when Atlantis right, was right. suspected to exist. So, you know, what, that's I, evidence I, against their hypothesis. Exactly. I, I completely agree with Steve. At this point, speculating that the people that built this city we built this city God get me out of the 80s um, <laughs> the people who did that sure, then they could have been anybody from anywhere you know with the collapse of any other city, so it's ridiculous
2: it's yeah it's just you know you're seeing you're finding some evidence and then you're prematurely attaching it to some you know big you know popular mythology yeah. with, without any evidence to do so it's like you know finding a hair. On a tree and thinking that it's Bigfoot when you have no reason to think that it's Bigfoot, but that's what you want it to be, you know. It's, it's, but it's,
4: it's, sure, yeah. But uh, if you say if you announce it, you think it's Bigfoot, it certainly gets you into the news
2: cycle. Well, yeah, that's, but, right.
1: that's just it. Yes, you use the word Atlantis because nobody cares if you think it's the Uca people, yeah. right? Nobody, right? Who's gonna That, that won't even make page forty six of the newspaper. You say Atlantis,
2: or that they were Roman, you know. One last quick news item, uh, and that is that registration is now open for TAM-9. Hooray. And you guys know what they're calling it this year, what the name of this, this TAM is?
0: TAM-9 from outer space. <laughs> right, TAM-9
2: from outer
4: space. I love it, I love That's it. It's a great idea. Yeah. And
2: they're going to have an, an astronomy theme. I mean, there's going to be all the usual you know, uh, topics and players there, but... Uh, but there's going to be a strong uh, astronomy, I guess, sub-theme there. And uh, that's because the keynote speaker is going to be Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is totally awesome. awesome. Mm -hmm. He's awesome. Uh, We will be recording two live shows at TAM as usual, um, and we will have an SGU dinner. Uh, The details are all still pending. Uh, in terms of the exact scheduling of all this, uh, but but they will be going on. We will have a science-based medicine workshop, and Rebecca mm-hmm. is going to be doing her special, super special game show and variety hour on Thursday. That's tonight. right. Yeah. It's going to kick. But looking forward to that. Sorry. So <laughs> check it out. Go to randy R-E-N-D-I. org. Uh, look for the amazing meeting, July fourteenth to seventeenth, two thousand and eleven. In Las Vegas, Nevada at the South Point Hotel, uh, you really, really do need to, uh, to go to TAM if you haven't been there before. It's awesome. Well, Evan, let's go on to Who's That Noisy?
1: <clears throat> so I'm going to play for you last week's Who's That Noisy? A lot of guesses this week. That is... That is a flock of geese running down a paved street, (laughs) which apparently is a very popular video on YouTube. Some, I guess, 350,000 hits.
0: Okay. Did anybody get that? Yes. (laughs) Of course they
1: did. We have the sharpest audience in all of radio and podcasting. It's true. Astroskeptic from the message boards was the first one to guess correctly.
2: Astroskeptic?
1: astro skeptic his first post too so well done
2: ah that was a good one that was a good one yeah what do you got for this week
1: okay here is this week's who's that noisy it was so exciting because it was like we thought we were doing the things for the first time they'd ever been done and it was all it was was it was the first time they'd ever been done that cheap using a lot of the lsi technology okay Mm -hmm. there you have it there you have him please tell me who that is and post your message or your answer on our forum or send us an email at info dot at org. Good luck, good everyone. everyone.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Evan. <laughs>
1: Jay, don't step on my catchphrase, please.
2: Uh, we
3: have Evan wishing people good. <laughs> Do I ever forget
1: that? Not once.
2: So. <laughs> <laughs> we have a few questions this week. First we're going to start with some corrections, uh, beginning with our good friend Magellan.
1: Ferdinand Magellan,
2: Ferdinand. maybe your good friend,
1: born in 1480 and died 1521, 41 years old, or 40. A oh, piker, <laughs> just a Portuguese explorer. His expedition of 1519 to 1522 was the first expedition to sail from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean, uh, and the first across to, to the Pacific. Now, what we got wrong is last week is that we had mentioned that Magellan was the first. One to circumnavigate the globe. And that's actually not true. Uh, he died uh, along the way. In 1521. What did he die of? 21. He died of Moida. He
2: died of Moida. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Killed during the Battle of Mactan in the Philippines. Did yeah. they keep
0: his body on board, though? Because technically, maybe he still circumnavigated.
1: Unfortunately, <laughs> no. And you would, you would you, I, I would think that that might count in some sort of macabre way. I guess mm-hmm. Bob would have to tell us. But. No, unfortunately during that battle they uh took it. they took him, they killed him, they kept his remains, and they refused, although they tried to parlay to get his remains back, uh his crew, uh they uh the the natives refused, so he was right. never returned.
2: So he didn't I make think. it, but some members of his crew, who nobody remembers the name of, were the first people to circumnavigate actually physically circumnavigate. Well someone
0: remembers the name because they emailed it to us. Juan Sebastián Elcano. That's the guy.
1: He took over mm-hmm. command of the expedition after Magellan's death, and at the very end of the expedition, when they arrived home, they started with 237 men and five ships. Only one ship came back with 18 people on board.
4: Whoa!
1: This, the mission was deemed a success by the <laughs> king. By the king.
2: <laughs> there we go.
1: Right. So there's there's your correction.
2: And we got some interesting feedback on Jay's discussion of DNA computing.
3: So one of our listeners named Steven Salzberg, listen to this guy's title. Director, Center for Bioinformatics and Computational Biology at the Horvitz Professor of, of Computer Science. And the his name of his building has a, a cooler title than even I do. Biomolecular Science Building. Has better credentials than I do. So um, – Stephen wrote me after we had talked about the DNA computing last week to inform me that the information that I researched off the web is basically a bunch of b s
2: well it's it's biased i mean it's it's it was very promotional
3: well he did he did say that there are a ton of websites there's like a culture uh, uh, that you could find on the web of people talking about DNA computing and From what he wrote, it seemed that he wasn't surprised that that's what I stumbled upon. And, you know, admittedly, he is someone who does this for for a living, and, you know, he wanted to clarify some of the facts that we got wrong. That when the DNA DNA computing concept came out, uh, it came out in 1994. It was a paper that had been written by a man named Len Adelman, and it was a pretty amazing discovery that he made or, or, you know, a concept that he had come up with. But since then, it's you know 17 years after the fact, things have really not progressed that much. And as a fact, they have found reasons why DNA computing isn't really going to be what it had been predicted to eventually get to. And then he did go into list the problems. He said there's there's a ton of reasons why this really isn't going to hit the mark. One of them is that the the amount of time the DNA computing would take is way too long. It's it's very slow and as it gets and as it scales up it, it gets slower and slower. I asked him matter of factly if there was any hope that DNA computing would one day get to where some of these scientists have predicted and he, he basically said no, I don't think there's any hope that this will ever work in a practical sense. In fact, I don't think we even want to try DNA DNA computing. DNA molecules are quite large, and we're much more likely to create even smaller devices that do preci- precisely what we want and
4: that are on the same scale or even smaller. The slowness seems to be a deal killer. Yeah, he made it sound like it's, it's, it goes way beyond technical hurdles. It's more of a fundamental limitation that yeah. you can't get around, so that just kills it. Right. So that was very disappointing to hear that. It was not in-
2: I do want to get through a couple of other questions. I think these are both good questions. The first one comes from James from New York, and he writes, The other day in my high school class, Ambit Energy came up because a few of the students have parents in the program. It was explained, and my first reaction was, this is a pyramid scheme and fraud. But I didn't have any evidence to back it up. Now, that I've read the website, it seems like it's clearly fraud. How do you guys recommend I tell these guys that their parents, even if they are making money, are part of a scam? All right. I spent a long time researching the whole Ambit Energy thing. This company is, in fact, a uh, multi-level marketing company.
0: A.K.A. Pyramid's
2: A.K.A. Game. Pyramid's Game. A.K.A. Right?
0: MLM.
1: MLM. Oh, now they're right.
2: calling it network marketing. That's the, that's the term they're using for it.
0: Every time they soil one term, they move on to the next like <laughs> locusts. Yeah.
2: <right. laughs> or rats. <laughs> Multi-level marketing in many states is illegal, uh, but it's defined as uh, if all you're doing is collecting money from your so-called downstream. If you're not actually selling something to the public, that's technically a pyramid scheme and it's illegal. But but multi-level marketing itself is legal as long as you're selling a product. So Ambit Energy is selling a product. What they're doing essentially is selling energy, is selling your electricity or your natural gas. They're, they're not really providing it themselves. They're just um, brokering it, I guess. They're, they're buying it yeah. on the open market and, and brokering it. They're, they're doing this in Texas, New York, Illinois, and Georgia because those are the states that have deregulated the power industry, mm-hmm. you know, the companies that deliver this. So you, know, you guys remember Enron? Oh, yeah. oh sure. sure. So that was yeah. That was in Texas, right? That was a similar thing. Yes. You know, they they were that was another company that was uh, you know brokering energy. I don't think they were doing they weren't doing this kind of thing. They weren't selling it to individual consumers with a multi level marketing you know uh, scheme. So the, the the ambient energy thing, uh, what they do is they you know, you have to pay for the right to sell the energy, and uh, you have to I think it costs four hundred dollars, and then you pay some like $25 a month for a website which is it seems like it's almost a necessity and you get that money back if you can get enough other people to sign up with you of course you know the these the reason why these multi-level marketing uh, scams fail is because you know you can only go so many iterations before you run out of people in the world, you know, and so you, it's not sustainable. And the only people who really make money are the people who get in very early, early, and are at or near the top of these companies. Everyone else, you know, loses money. You know, like greater than ninety-five percent of people lose money, and those are the people who are feeding the money to the people who are making it near the top. Right? Someone's got to be losing that money. And there's there's usually very little actual selling going on, although there has to be some in order, you know, not to be considered a pyramid scheme. Uh, I there was a lot of conflicting evidence uh, on on uh, from what I could find on the internet, um, and what I also found was that ambit energy, they're called consultants, right? The salesmen are very active in flooding the internet. With promotional information, and whenever there is any kind of negative information, either a complaint or a critical article, they flood the comments you know with how wonderful it is and all of their their you know sales, speech, and also some really nasty personal attacks against the people who are criticizing them or complaining, or essentially customers complaining about the service that they got.
1: It sounds eerily similar to the kind of what some Scientologists do.
2: Well, it's a, in, yeah. that, in that it's a really aggressive. I mean, I I find this a lot. Like I notice, you know, having blogged for a number of years, whenever I blog about a product, I- invariably a salesperson from the company shows up in the comments to to defend themselves.
0: Yeah, and that's actually becoming big business now, not just amongst scam artists, but amongst all businesses. And it's actually quite worrying that this this sort of um, technique. Yeah, techniques such as. Like astroturfing, for for instance, which is companies, large companies that are able to uh, make blogs and things like that that look like it's grassroots support. And there are, there's technology that's out there now that allows them to, for instance, a large company can order, say, I want you know, a hundred blogs uh with a hundred different usernames updated on a weekly basis that are saying this about my company. Wow. Um and each of those users has a background. Each of those users has a Facebook profile and you know, a MySpace and and a Twitter account. And it looks very natural. These profiles are built and so you can go back into the history of the accounts. They look like they've been around a while, um, before this company has taken it over and it's quite seamless. And, you know, it's a bit scary the way yeah. that, um, corporations, like if you have enough money, you can actually quite easily fool the internet into thinking that you have support when you don't.
2: Now, one one source I found uh, from deregulatedelectricity.com actually it was pretty pretty neutral about this, but they were very they had good information. They pointed out, for example, that uh, for all of the salespeople out there, uh, on average, they only have about four customers, which is not nearly enough to be making any money. You know that you need to get about thirty customers just to break even, and you're only getting. You know, a, a few dollars a customer. You know, as as your your cut of their electricity bill that they're paying. So that means the vast majority of these people have to be losing money on this scheme. And in terms of the service itself, like, somebody offers you know, to sell you, um, you know, they'll say you could save money if you pay your electricity you get it through Ambit, or again, there's about a dozen of these other companies out there. This isn't the only one, you know, versus uh, Con Edison, for example, in New York, that you'll save, they promise like 7%, Uh, But that's actually only for the first two months. And then it's basically whatever the market is. They really can't make any promises beyond that point. A lot of uh, critics were saying that they're trading on the fact that um, the pricing scheme for energy, for electricity, is very confusing. Most people would be very confused by it. That just creates the opportunity for the salespeople who may be confused themselves because, again, they're customers too – to, to generate a lot of confusion among among the people that they 're selling it to, and then so a lot of people realize at the end of the day they got ripped off you know that their the rates went up after the first couple of months they were paying more than they were before um, they were very confused about what the whole deal was um, and even in the best case scenario you 're only talking about a tiny savings like one or two percent you know it's it 's not like there 's a big savings being offered here so uh, it seems like it 's Primarily a multi-level marketing scheme, taking advantage of the deregulation of electricity and, and natural gas sales in these four states, um, and I probably would just steer clear of any of these uh, of these companies. Well, let's go on with our interview. Joining us now is Mark Mervine. Mark, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Good evening. And Mark, you are a, I don't know if a nuclear engineer is the right word, but you worked in a nuclear power plant in the Navy and two commercial power plants, and you served on a nuclear submarine. So you have a, a lot of experience with nuclear power plants, and that's what we want to talk to you about this evening. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, so first um, we actually want to get into a little bit of detail, maybe go beyond the kind of treatment that uh, the, the TV news shows are giving for this. The reason why we're talking tonight is because of the the problems with the nuclear power plants in Japan following the earthquake and tsunami. So can we first start by just getting a, a quick technical overview of how a nuclear power plant works.
5: I think the the best way to describe this is to give people a, a basic understanding of how any large power plant works. So I think a lot of people are surprised to find out that most large power plants work by generating steam, which in turn turns a turbine, a very large turbine. And attached to the turbine, you have an electrical generator, which generates electricity. That electricity is then fed through a series of transformers and electrical switches and connected to the electrical power grid. The steam, uh, as it comes out of the turbine, has to be cooled and condensed back into water and then fed back into whatever the heat source is. And in the case of a nuclear power plant, we use uranium and, through the fissioning process of splitting the uranium atom, create heat, which generates steam, depending on the design of the plant, either directly or indirectly, which turns the turbine and the generator, just as in any large power plant.
2: Yeah, so the only difference is that nuclear fission is being used to generate the heat.
5: but The, the but big it, difference is yeah. the heat source, correct.
2: Typically, what uh, nuclear fission process is being used in commercial uh, nuclear power plants?
5: In a commercial nuclear power plant, the fuel is uranium. Naturally occurring uranium is about 99% uranium-238 and 1% uranium-235. The uranium-238 is not actually a fissionable fuel. Uranium-235 is. So what they do is they actually enrich the uranium to about 3 or 4% to create enough uranium-235 that it can be used as a fuel in a reactor. Um, All of this fuel ends up having plutonium in it because what also happens in a nuclear reactor is uranium-238, although it will not fission, will absorb a neutron, Mm -hmm. and after a couple of decays, will become plutonium-239, which is also a fissionable fuel. So any uranium fuel that's been in a reactor for any period of time will also have plutonium in it.
2: And also, so the, the heat comes from the, the fission of uranium-235, but then the fuel will still uh, undergo decay and create heat even after that, though, right?
5: So the, the, the big concern that we've had in the past week with the reactors in Japan has been due to a phenomenon which is referred to as decay heat. So first off, when the reactor is initially shut down, it's pretty warm. The fuel is usually around 1,100 degrees, though the water is usually around 500 degrees. So first off, it's very, very hot to begin with, and it's going to take some period of time to cool off. But then the additional challenge that we have with the nuclear power plant is... When the uranium is split, you create other elements, which are radioactive, and they decay. And in the process of slowly decaying, they release energy. They decay, and they give off particles, and those particles cause friction, which generates heat. So for a long period of time, a fuel rod that's been in a reactor will have heat that needs to be removed until it's completely cooled.
2: So can you walk us through what's been going on with the nuclear power plants in Japan following the tsunami?
5: The plant that we're all concerned about is the Fukushima 1 nuclear power station. At that station, there are are actually six reactors. All of these reactors are boiling water reactors that were designed and built in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, Let me start with the two that are probably, at the moment, I won't say of no concern, but of less concern, and that are units 5 and 6. Units five and six are the two newest ones, and they're also um, physically separated from the other four. So in terms of the pictures that you can see, it doesn't look like they've suffered any collateral damage from what's been happening at the other four units. It was reported today that they've been able to get uh, a diesel generator in unit six started. So the presumption would be that they've been able to restore some electricity to that unit and hopefully to some of the cooling pumps It was also reported that they're using the equivalent of a long extension cord to try to tap some of that power from the generator in Unit 6 to power some of the more critical pumps in Unit 5. But at the moment, those two plants are um, not as much of a concern for the reasons that I just described, but also because they had been shut down for maintenance at the time that the earthquake occurred.
4: How How could they be any problem then at all?
5: Because you still have, um, either within the reactor vessel, depending on the state of um, fueling or defueling, you still are going to have fuel in that reactor, and you're going to have fuel in the spent fuel pool. And both of those, you know, depending on where that fuel is, need to receive cooling. Because as we just went through, for a long period of time, Mm -hmm. you're going to have that decay heat generated.
2: Okay, so even a shutdown reactor, if there's fuel in there, it, it needs constant cooling to keep the fuel from Correct. heating up. Okay. Correct. Okay, and that's why they needed to get the generators going, because the, the, the power plants, ironically, don't have power, because w- w- they're shut down, and because the grid, I imagine, is shut down, too.
5: During the first hour after the earthquake, they lost the grid, but they still had power from their diesel generators. When the tsunami hit, the water flooded the diesel generators and electrical switch gear and caused all six units to lose complete electrical power, except for what they had in batteries. Mm -hmm. So now we turn our attention to units one through four, which have been the subject of the news and are very problematic. Units one through three were operating at the time of the earthquake and automatically shut down. And as I just said, for about an hour, the emergency systems kicked in and everything was functioning as it should be. Unit four was shut down for maintenance and refueling at the time of the earthquake. And what I've been able to find out in the last couple of days is that they had actually taken the entire core out of Unit 4, and that whole core is in the spent fuel pool. We have uh, multiple problems going on at these units. In Units 1, 2, and 3, they were not able to maintain water level and pressure And it's been reported that there's as much as 7% fuel damage in Unit 1, 30% in Unit 2, no report on the amount of fuel damage in Unit 3, but given uh, all of the evidence, there's also going to be some percentage of fuel damage in Unit 3.
3: Mark, when you say, when you say damage to the fuel, what specifically happened to it?
5: We don't know what the extent of the damage is. We don't know if the fuel is blistered, if it's warped, or if it's actually partially melted. But in any event, we can hypothesize that there's been fuel damage in all three of those reactors. And in all three reactors, there have been hydrogen explosions. In units one and unit three, the explosions occurred as they were trying to reduce the pressure in the reactor vessel. And they were venting steam, and they also were venting hydrogen. The reason they were venting hydrogen is the fuel rods are enclosed in a metal called zirconium. Zirconium has great properties for operating uh, in a reactor in terms of heat resistance, um, rust resistance, those type of things. So it's a, it's, a, it's a great material. But at 2200 degrees Fahrenheit, which is well above uh, the temperature at which you would normally operate, uh, normally that fuel would be on the order of about 1100 degrees when the the plant is at full power. Zirconium will interact with water or steam, H2O, and forms zirconium dioxide, and the hydrogen is released. So the oxygen from the water is taken in to form the zirconium dioxide, and the hydrogen is given off. So when they were re- reducing pressure in these reactors, they and they were venting the steam to reduce this, they were also venting hydrogen. And clearly, based on what happened, they vented enough hydrogen that when it interacted with the atmosphere in the reactor building, that it was an explosive level and we had the explosion.
3: Would you happen to know um, if, it, if it is possible if any radiation could uh, potentially make it to uh, the west coast of the United
5: States? Well, nothing is ever impossible. And uh, there would always be a question of, you know, at what level could you detect any radiation? But realistically, at this point in time, there's, I don't think there's any concern whatsoever to the Pacific coast of the United States. So we vented the steam, we vented the hydrogen, and the fact that we had hydrogen tells us that we had to have fuel damage because we get the hydrogen when we reach 2,200 degrees and we interact with the zirconium. We also know that because they were able to detect cesium and iodine in their atmospheric samples, and cesium and iodine are two of the products that are formed when uranium splits. And, and of course, as I said now, they have reported fuel damage in at least reactors one and two, and I think any um, scientist or engineer will tell you it must also be the case in Unit 3. The other big problem that we face is the spent fuel pools. So the spent fuel pools in these design of reactors are in that reactor building, up fairly high, and there is no steel liner or containment around those. All that separates the spent fuel pool from the atmosphere was the top of the reactor building. And if you look at the photos, in particular, if you look at the photos of the damage of unit one, you can see the steel frame of the building, which is pretty much all that's left of it. And these buildings um, are essentially uh, similar to any type of industrial building, steel frame, they might be concrete, or they might be steel sides. In any event... In both units one and three, due to the explosions, the vast majority of, of that structure has been carried away. So any of this steam that had radioactivity in it from the water and from any fuel damage that was vented went to the atmosphere. And also any of the spent fuel in the spent fuel pools that might be damaged would also then be releasing its radioactivity to the atmosphere, which brings us to unit four. So although Unit 4 was shut down and all the fuel was unloaded from it, very clearly we're not going to have a core meltdown in the reactor because there is no fuel in the reactor. But we have all of that fuel that was just taken out of the reactor, and now it's in the spent fuel pool. Based on the fact that we had an explosion, which seriously damaged the reactor building of that unit, it's pretty clear that the fuel in the spent fuel pool heated up, became at least partially uncovered, and was damaged, and radiation was released to the atmosphere. And just this evening, the chairman of the NRC, the U.S. NRC, stated that his team in Japan believes that, in fact, there's no water remaining in Unit 4's uh, spent fuel pool and that all that fuel is exposed to the environment. Wow. And they've now recommended a 50-mile evacuation zone which goes well beyond the 30 kilometers that the Japanese authorities were recommending.
4: Why does it seem like there's so little protection around these spent fuel pools? It seems like they um, should be protected a little bit more than, than it was.
5: I think the logic with respect to the spent fuel pool is it's a very deep pool. The fuel rods are usually about 14 feet high, and the pool is usually at least twice that deep. So there's another 14 feet of water above the height of the fuel in these pools. Without any cooling, it's going to take a long period of time before these pools become problematic. And you know, in what we just saw, it was it was a matter of, of days before the spent fuel pools became a problem. And I, and I think the logic there was that with days to resolve any issue, uh, you know, it was it was never hypothesized that we would let a, a spent fuel pool go dry.
2: So for whatever reason, they just didn't get they just were not paying attention to that, to the water levels in the spent fuel pool, maybe because they were distracted by so many other things or whatever.
5: You know, I I mean, obviously none of us know what's really happening on site, and there's been a huge knowledge gap. There's a complete lack of transparency on the the part of Tokyo Electric Power Company and I, I think to a lesser extent the Japanese government to actually explain to people what is happening. But under normal circumstances you would expect one of the operators would make an hourly round of the spent fuel pool and check for any concerns or problems. And even without power, they clearly had diesel generators and diesel pumps that were brought in. They had days to get water up to these spent fuel pools before they became a problem. And so I, I just I can't explain it, to be honest with you.
2: And now that the fuel is damaged, that's the problem because it releases that allows the fuel rods to release radioactivity into the environment. So now it's too late? I mean, is there any point now in trying to get water into those pools?
5: Well, it's not too late because for two factors. You get water in there and you cool them back off and you're going to stop what's happening. Also, water is a very, very good shield of radiation. So get that pool filled back up and it's going to drop the radiation levels uh, at the site back down to more normal and tolerable levels. I think the pro- one of the big problems they have now is the radiation levels have riv- risen so high that you can no longer go up there with a fire hose and fill that pool. They're trying all, the- all other types of things, like dropping water from helicopters. They brought in uh, police water cannons that are used in riot control, trying to find some way to get some water into those pools. Should use some of their robots. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not, not sure they're tested for that,
5: but Hey,
4: Spock's <laughs> not available.
2: So, if I could summarize, uh, cause I know we covered a lot of territory. It sounds like the big problem there 's the, the the spent fuel pool in in, in uh, plant four but the 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 bigger problem perhaps is the uh, towers one, two, and three that were that were operating. uh, When the tsunami hit, their backup cooling equipment failed, so the fuel, even though the plants were shut down, but the fuel was still getting hot from decay heat, even though they weren't critical, meaning there was no self-sustaining nuclear fission going on. The backup cooling failed. They didn't really have a, a way of fixing that before they became so hot that you know, they were releasing hydrogen, which ultimately led to uh, – there's a few explosions, right? I think there was more than one. Yeah. And, and now mm-hmm. there's some damage to the containment uh, facilities. So I guess at this point, I mean, have we seen the worst of it? Is there still the possibility that any of this fuel can heat up to the point where they will uh, become critical?
5: As we've seen, the fuel does not have to be critical for it to be a big problem. All of these reactors were shut down. They were subcritical. It's the amount of decay heat that's generated that is very significant that is is causing these problems. It's definitely too early to say that we've seen the worst of this because at that site, there are seven spent fuel pools. There are one at each of the reactors, and then there is a large common pool. And we need to ensure that um, all of those pools are refilled with water and kept refilled with water And then, of course, we need to make sure that any of the reactors that have fuel in them also receive cooling. This is not cooling that you need for a few minutes or a few hours. This is cooling that you need for days and weeks and months. So we definitely cannot say that the worst is over.
2: So with the condition that the fuel is in now, is there a possibility that if they don't adequately cool them, that they could become critical and... That I would assume that would make the situation a lot worse if that happened.
5: It's it's difficult to give an answer to that because we don't know the condition of the fuel. If if we take a worst-case scenario, and normally if the fuel maintains its shape, even if it's blistered or warped a little bit, it would not be a problem because in these reactors the control rods were fully inserted, and the control rods have boron in them which absorb the neutrons and prevent us from having enough neutrons available to cause the reactor to be able to, to sustain itself. The concern is if the fuel melts, then you no longer have that geometry mm-hmm. where, where the rods are in between the different um, fuel elements and are in the exact position to absorb neutrons and prevent any portion of the fuel from being able to go critical. If the fuel melted and became a blob it's possible that the blob could form in a way that part of it didn't have any of the pieces of the control rod in it, and that little piece could become critical. And that's why you should have picked up that not only are they pumping seawater in, but they're adding boron to the seawater. Mm -hmm. The purpose of that boron is to absorb neutrons in the event that we have this uh, malformation of the core such that the control rods are ineffective.
2: Well, Mark, thanks for going over all of that with us. We really appreciate you giving us your time.
5: All right. I hope it helped.
2: All right. It did. Thanks a lot. Definitely. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. It's
1: time
4: for Science or Fiction.
2: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. And, of course, the listeners can play along at home or wherever they happen to be while they listen to our podcast. Yeah, play with yourself at home. Yes. (laughs) As Evan does. Where else do you do that? Right. All right. You guys ready for this week? (laughs) Yes. You rat bastard. (laughs) Here we go. Item number one. New Hubble measurements of the expansion of the universe lend support to the theory of dark energy. Item number two, a psychological researcher warns that obsessive-compulsive disorder is on the rise because it is being triggered by obsessive collecting. And item number three, a new study shows that beaching of beaked whales is not caused by military use of sonar, as has been previously claimed. Jay, go first.
3: So uh, the the one about the, the Hubble measurements... We keep going back and forth with this idea of of dark energy existing or not existing. Uh, no, we don't. But I would imagine that um, that that Hubble definitely could see something or pick up something that could uh, give us some evidence towards the existence of dark energy. So I think that one seems uh, likely. Um, the second one about the psychological researcher um, and the compulsive disorder thing. This is. Uh, doubtful I think it seems unlikely that uh, that be people collecting things like that's making people become more compulsive that's that's really strange like I mean is it you know is collecting an issue like really like a, I don't know that doesn't seem right to me and the final one about the sonar and the whales I, I could believe that sonar has an effect on whales and I can also believe that it doesn't there's really nothing about this news item that I think um doesn't doesn't do anything. no no flags are going up on that one, so I think just out of these three that the the compulsive disorder one seems to be the most fake.
2: okay Evan
1: Hubble measurements expansion of the universe lends support to the theory of dark energy i I don't see why that wouldn't be the case only because it's new measurements. Next one, the psychological researcher warns obsessive-compulsive disorder is on the rise because it's triggered by obsessive collecting. Can that work reverse? Can obsessive collecting therefore be deemed, diagnosed compuls- as obsessive-compulsive disorder? Does it work backwards? I don't know. I'll have to find out. And then this, the uh, last one, the new study showing that beached whales not caused by military use of sonar and that, as was previously claimed... Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen any news on that in a long time about Beached Whales. I'm not sure what to think about that one. Well, I'm kind of getting the feeling that that one's the fiction. I, there's a... I, I don't know. I'm just getting a sense that that one's a little bit fiction-y to me, whereas the other two are not. I don't really have a good explanation. So I'll say that. I'll say the Beached Whales one is fiction.
4: Okay, Bob. Dark Energy 1 and the Hubble. Yeah, I mean... Jay, yeah, I think you were confusing dark matter with dark energy. I, I don't think dark energy has been going up and down. Um, I really haven't read anything uh, about dark energy that made me think that they, there was any doubt at all. You're right, Bob. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah. So if, if – it's
2: easy to confuse those two. Dark matter, dark energy. <laughs> if the, I think if the Hubble – Dark me.
4: God.
0: Dark man.
4: I think it – Rebecca.
0: I got nothing. Darkwing, Darkwing Duck there.
4: Darkwing okay. Duck.
3: Oh. Yeah. Dark City?
0: Spider-Man turn
1: off the dark? Darkness on the edge We're of town. With that? I think if the Hubble had discovered <laughs> so I think if you. Hubble
4: had discovered um evidence against dark energy, I think that would have been much bigger, a big story that I would have uh that I would have seen. I have I haven't seen this one, but oh, okay. uh, I don't but uh, it makes sense that that it's it's got further support for dark energy. Uh, the second one about the um OCD being triggered by obsessive collecting. I could see that I could see that that is a trigger because it's because it's obviously so easy to collect these days. I mean, Jesus, go on eBay. You you could find virtually or almost anything you desire to to beef up your collection. So I, I could see that as being uh, as as a trigger that's being detectable these days. Uh the third one though, but the, the beached whales not caused by the military use of sonar. Um I remember reading about this you know a while back. And uh, it seemed pretty plausible um, and fairly solid that uh, that it was the sonar being used by the military. So I'm, I see this as the least plausible of the three. So I'm going to say this one is fiction.
2: Okay, Rebecca.
0: Yeah, I I don't know anything about the dark energy thing, but uh, that sounds dark matter.
2: Don't know right. much about dark energy. And
0: energies.
1: dark chocolate.
0: I can totally understand the. Yeah, I agree with Bob. The obsessive collecting thing is I mean this almost relentless consumerism that could contribute to that and all those hoarders shows and yeah collecting it's big it's the in thing beanie babies etc iPads um so yeah that that may I can see how how collecting things can become an obsession and can lead to a full-fledged disorder Beach whales though, yeah. I thought it was pretty conclusive that, um, sonar can screw up whales. I haven't read anything about this. I did read another whale related news item this week that I was sort of hoping you would use, Steve, which is that whales might have names. Ooh, mm-hmm. cool. Like Steve, Steve. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> oh, that's what cool. really cool. so they're saying to each other. J- yeah. J- <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> exactly. So um I just wanted to get that in there. Okay. Irrelevant. <laughs> it's a great news <laughs> item. Um <laughs> first names or last names? <laughs> but, so, yeah, I think I think the sonar
2: one okay. is uh, fiction. All right. So you all agree that new Hubble measurements of the expansion of the universe lend support to the theory of dark energy. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. <gasps> uh-huh. Yes, I did not sweep you mm-hmm. this week. And you're right, Bob. That the surprising news story would have been the other way around if it – disagreed Mm -hmm. with the theory of dark energy. So dark energy comes from the late 1990s. I believe it was 1998 when it was first proposed. Huge. Uh, Yeah, when researchers realized, uh, you know, astronomers measuring the uh, rate of expansion of the universe noticed that it was, in fact, accelerating, Mm -hmm. which, you know, according to everything we knew at the time, wasn't supposed to happen <laughs> so they had to come up with some explanation for that so they said okay well maybe there is this other repulsive like anti-gravity force in the universe that's actually accelerating stuff out um, similar to Einstein's cosmological constant right which was mm. his sort of fudge factor for why the universe wasn't collapsing um, dark, yeah, fudge. So then he, <laughs> dark fudge then he got rid of that when, uh, when Hubble discovered the universe was expanding he's like okay okay we don't need the the cosmological constant anymore. We don't need this repulsive force to keep the universe open. Uh, but then we we've discovered it was accelerating, not just expanding. Then it, that concept of a, of a repulsive energy had to be reintroduced, and that's where dark energy came from. Uh, you 're about to say something about it? Yeah, just the
4: uh, Einstein's cosmological constant was uh, to, a fudge factor to show that not only that it wasn't uh, shrinking, but it wasn't expanding as well. It was static. kind of. Right, gravity was
3: balancing right. out
2: by this other thing. Yeah, right.
4: Jay, what do you
1: think of Einstein?
3: Well, you know, it's funny. A lot of people mispronounce his name, and it's just (laughs)
2: ridiculous. I mean, everyone except me mispronounces his name. It's bullshit.
1: Everyone. (laughs) Even even he did. did.
2: So for a little bit more background, when the expansion was first uh, discovered, an alternate hypothesis to dark energy was that, well, maybe that our section of the universe is at the center of a bubble of mostly empty space— if that were the case, then this acceleration could be an optical illusion. So this was the bubble sort of hypothesis. However, the bubble hypothesis can only explain a relatively small amount of acceleration, but still within the error bars of of observations. So if if the if the acceleration was at the low end of the range of possibilities the bubble theory would be tenable however a lot of people think yeah but you know you're saying that we're somehow magically at the center of this big bubble it's it's kind of contrived so i don't know that how popular it really ever was now with the new hubble observations show is that they're basically more precise measurements of the rate of expansion and acceleration of the universe, which narrowed the error bars and essentially narrowed them out of range of the bubble hypothesis, therefore eliminating this alternative to dark energy and supporting dark energy as sort of the last man standing as explaining um, the expansion.
4: The bubble hubbub.
2: The bubble hubbub, yep. The hubble, it's the, the hubble, 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 hubble bubble Hubble bubble
4: hubbub. Now we should
1: have hubble hubbub. D- now. No, okay. no. done. Bubble gum. We've maxed out.
2: <laughs> Put bubble gum on the end of that. No. Okay. No. Well, I guess we'll take them in order. So let's go on to number two. A psychological researcher warns that obsessive compulsive disorder is on the rise because it is being triggered by obsessive collecting. Everyone but Jay thinks this one is true. Jay, you think this one is fiction. What do you think, Steve? I think that this one is science, uh, of course. Yeah, what is Jay? going on this year with science? Jay, don't, the same thing that goes <laughs> yeah. on every year? Yeah, Jay. basically. Don't volunteer wow. to go first. Oh,
0: what?
1: Sorry about lame. that. Huh?
2: Yeah, so uh, this is our researcher Francisca Lopez Torresitas. At the Department of Personality Psychological Assessment and Treatment of the University of Grenada, and she she you know points out that in fact diagnoses of obsessive compulsive disorder are on the rise, and she believes that the this is being triggered so in susceptible individuals, not that it's being caused, but just but it's being yes. triggered early in susceptible individuals because of uncontrolled collecting and obsessive shopping. So. This, this she thinks this leads to um, so uncontrolled collecting is actually a disorder in and of itself, as is obsessive compulsive disorder and as is shopping addiction. And of course, these are all kind of related behaviors. Um, yeah. and,
1: that shows hoarders is yeah. So hoarding sad. is
2: different though. Hoarding is a separate, different pathology than just obsessive compulsive. This, though, it's, a, it's in it? the same you know realm, but it's it's a distinct. Because if diagnosis. you watch that. But if
1: you watch that show, you you run across some of these people who absolutely are collecting certain types of things. Yeah, they, they stuffing it into right. their homes. You're right.
2: I know some people, you know, perseverate on food. They can't throw any food out. But but generally speaking, they um, they hoard pretty much everything. They have anxiety over letting go of anything. Whereas collecting is more yeah. specific things. Like you you collect something, and then you get obsessed with finding more and more and more of those things. Now she's careful to point out that uh, collecting in controlled amounts, is actually psychologically very healthy. It can, can, you know, gives you something to do. It can teach people about categorization and, and assessing quality and things like that. So it's, it, it's not that collecting itself is, is counterproductive. But when it becomes an obsession, when it you know, takes over your life, that's when it becomes a disorder. And, and it definitely is related to obsessive-compulsive disorder because it's an obsession. And it is related to shopping addiction, which is interesting. I didn't realize that was a recognized disorder.
0: It makes sense, yeah. Acquiring new things. Acquiring new things, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. All right. All of this means that a new study shows that beaching of beaked whales is not caused by military use of sonar, as has been previously claimed, is fiction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The study shows, in fact – now, I didn't make this this one a science item because the study doesn't exactly show – that the uh, military sonar is causing beaching, but what they did show, uh, they they essentially attached um, sonar devices to uh, beaked whales, and they simulated military sonar. They simulated whale sounds, and then they simulated the, just like some kind of noise as a control. Um, and, w- and with the simulated military sonar, what they found was that the the beaked whales immediately would stop their foraging behavior, and then would start uh, like swimming in the in the apparent direction of the sound um, in these sort of long ascending pathways. Uh, so it definitely changed their behavior, and uh, specifically, you know, stopped their foraging behavior. Uh, so then, when they when they knew what to look for, they did a follow up study where they went they they went and and. A, a monitored these whales. You know, they put like a little GPS on them, and to see how they behave in the vicinity of military sonar that's being used. And what they found was that they essentially clear the area. They clear out of the area that the sonar is being used, and then uh, when the sonar is turned off, they'll slowly return to that range over about a two to three day period. So it's very plausible. That these whales, who seem to be, you know, avoiding the area of the military sonar, could be pushed to a location that they wouldn't ordinarily go into, and, and you know, maybe driven, as it were, in, into shallow waters where they can get beached. So that's very plausible. They're all like,
0: Steve, Steve. turn that shit off,
2: <laughs> dude. You're whatever. You're harshing my mellow. Um, So, yeah. Uh, Not exactly proving that it's them, but it lent plausibility to that possibility. It's definitely affecting their behavior, according to these two studies. There you have it. Let me tell you really quickly the fourth item. I didn't use this one. I thought it would be too easy, but it's cool. Some researchers discovered that uh, they could make a um, specific computer chip. These are computer chips that have... A uh, not general processing chips, but are dedicated to some task. Like they gave the example mm-hmm. of being used in a hearing aid, for example. What? And they found that they can cut the energy usage in half, the size in half, and double the processing power by simply pruning some of the the less used pathways on the chip. Did you hear about this one, Bob? Yeah, I did actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I figured. Which is interesting, you know. And they, but the error rate goes up. So it makes more mistakes because you know some of the pathways that it needs are not there, just the ones it doesn't use very often. It goes up to like eight percent or something, but then they said that they could deal with that. It's basically, just so essentially, you learn to deal with the errors, um, and you keep them below a level that would adversely affect whatever the the process is. You can double efficiency and cut energy use and size in half by doing this by pruning the chips. Cool. It's an interesting huh. idea. That's cool. Well, congratulations, everyone. Jay, you got to break the streak, man.
3: Yeah. Well, you know how karma works. I'll probably have a, a good run coming up soon. All right. Yeah.
2: That's not how karma works, actually.
3: Karma, karma,
4: karma works by not existing.
2: That's called regression to the mean, actually. If you're having a bad run, you're likely to do better just by chance alone. So, Jay, give us a quote for this week.
3: <laughs> I have a quote that was sent to me by Jonathan Hoffman. This is a quote by Andrew Lang, and Andrew Lang was a Scots poet, novelist, and literary critic, and he was a contributor to the field of anthropology. And the quote is, an unsophisticated forecaster uses statistics as a drunken man uses lamppost for support rather than for illumination.
2: Andrew Lang! I thought that that was a Mark Twain quote. That's what I was about to say, and I was was Googling just to double-check
0: Google. I'd always also heard it.
2: But well, Google older, says Lang. Hmm. Yeah. Was that misattributed to Twain, Twain? Could be. I guess so. And Jay, well, yeah. speaking of which, the quote that was attributed to Magellan last week, this is the other part of that correction, probably wasn't said by Magellan. Yeah. Because he was dead. <laughs> 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 no, that, Who said it? Well, it, the quote was attributed to Magellan. By a modern author, but there's no reference, there's no contemporary reference, so it probably was a false attribution. So There's really no evidence to show that Magellan actually said the quote that you said last week. The quotation is often found on the internet attributed to Magellan, but never with a source and no occurrence prior to its use by Robert Greene Ingersoll.
3: Famous skeptic. Yeah, Ingersoll. In his essay, Individuality.
2: Cool. cool. Steve, Nexus, three weeks. Yeah, don't forget, Nexus, we're all going to be there three weeks, can't wait. NexusCon.org. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Shirley. Thank you, Steve. Very good job. And until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe.
4: The Skeptics Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU
0: Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice. Theorem is performed by Kineto and used with permission.